everybody. It's uh, Eric Newcomer here with Dead Cat. We've got Tom and Katie, and we're super excited to have Hunter Walk here of Homebrew, a venture capitalist who's now uh, investing out of uh, their own money, I guess. I'm curious to sort of get the story and a lively uh, Twitter presence, so a good opportunity to sort of uh, get up to speed on what's what's going on in Silicon Valley uh, money world. Uh, Hunter, how's it going? Great. Hey, friends. Thanks for having me. Yeah. One question. Is there a Dead Cat soundboard? Like, do you do sound drops? <laughs> <laughs> Should we? Would you like us to? Would you like well, us to have a sound for you? Katie, specifically, I don't know if you remember, but like when you used to drop big tech scoops uh, when you were at that part of the Times, I think I'd reply with like hashtag Benner Bomb. <laughs> on Twitter. So I was wondering if we could get like a funk flex bomb drop for you here sure. or something. We, ha- we Our engineer can put that in after the fact. It's like how Ronan Farrow posts on his Instagram stories like brace for impact right before <laughs> some other Hollywood perv gets taken down. I feel like our scruples on a copyright paranoia are, are low, so it gives us some <laughs> small enough audience. Time. Look, to, fair uh, use is a very gray area. So, right, you're an expert, and yeah, we're gonna get in. I'm curious to talk YouTube and all that stuff from your old days too. For sure, for sure. The closest thing I think we have to a soundboard is my fucking cat walking into the room and starting to starting to opine. <laughs> Which will happen, by the way. My door's you open. Now, so. now, to be fair, your cat fucking would be an interesting soundboard, too. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, she's... Uh, <laughs> that's next month. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's yeah, that's a different audience. Everyone always criticizes our dead cat name, but uh, I didn't think about that as the, you know, the little death's dead cat. <laughs> and on that note, hello, everybody. Uh, yes, all, all right. right. <laughs> So Hunter, yeah, why don't you just explain, because I'm going to be honest. Wait, no, Eric doesn't want me to be honest anymore about things I didn't read. Tom why loves to say he doesn't know what's going on. No, here's, here's the, the thing. I followed, I followed your announcement and, you know, uh, Casey Newton's, you know, dutiful broadcasting of your announcement when you guys kind of changed the structure around homebrew. But why don't you just explain to our audience, a.k.a. me, what the new, uh, the new strategy is with homebrew? Because I don't yeah, know if sure. I fully understand it. Absolutely, yeah. And look, it's a little bit inside baseball. Like, basically, we'd been meaning to announce it this year. We were heading to a conference where we knew there'd be a bunch of other VCs and everyone wanted to be like, how are things going? What's up with homebrew? And as opposed to having the same conversation 100 times, we're like, oh, we got to get this post out. Then we realized we didn't have any art for it. So 9.45 <laughs> p.m. in L.A., uh, Sacha, my partner, and I always share a hotel room when we travel. It's kind of the roommate thing. So we're like searching for $30 clip art, uh, which you can see in the post itself at uh, mm. homebrew, bring, homebrew.co. <laughs> okay. So look, here's the background for people who probably, I don't assume most people have heard of Homebrew to begin with. So I'm a former product manager who about 10 years ago with a friend and former colleague started an early stage venture fund called Homebrew, uh, named after the Homebrew Computer Club of the 1970s, early 80s. Uh, a tip backwards. And we could talk about that naming if you want later. Um, first 10 years, it's kind of very standard, right? We make eight to 10 core investments a year, seed stage companies trying to do one to 2 million of their first zero to five. And then really sort of, you know, long-term investors, but for the first three to five years, right? Their seed to series B, kind of lean in and, and be helpful. Uh, try to help them build a foundation to be the best version of, you know, of what they can become. Because it's our business, we get to, you know, decide what we want it to be. From the beginning, 
you know, look, we're, we didn't want to be empire builders. Uh, there was no plans for growth and no plans for succession. Right. From the beginning, you said you didn't want it to be a generational firm, right? Correct. Correct. Well, multi, yeah, no multi-generational. Um, and look, you own your business, like you can always revisit that. But, but I always think of us as an operating model with a flexible business model. The operating model is the two of us working together, spending most of our time with the founders we back, not going to conferences, not networking, not chasing the next hot YC deal. But the answer to the question, what do we want Homebrew to be for the next 10 years? We came up with an answer that was a little bit different than I think a lot of our peers. A lot of our peers have grown quite significantly over the time. Uh, what founders need has changed over the last, you know, eight, nine, 10 years. And so we said, look, we're going to, if we don't want to grow, you know, why don't we actually sort of stay the same or maybe even, you know, quote unquote, shrink, right? Let's focus on what matters. And that's being flexible enough to work with the founders we care about in the easiest way possible. That meant no longer, you know, having to have like an ownership target. Well, you know, our piece fits so long as you want to sell us 15% of your company. It meant no longer like trying to figure out in advance how much our fund should be 100 million, 200 million, 300 million, 400 million. Like that all, when, when, you're, when you're building a spreadsheet, you know, to sort of manage, manage a fund, you have to figure that stuff out in advance. So we did two things. We said, one, let's start out this fund for by actually just using our own money. I know this is an extremely personal question, but how, what, how much money is that? Or how, how, how much money are you putting behind it? It's more about sort of saying, look, I've got enough where like I can forego the salary. I can forego the, you know, the leverage on other people's dollars. And I'm willing to make the long-term bet that if we're writing checks together and, you know, taking 100% of the risk, but keeping 100% of the upside, like that's going to work out perfectly fine over time. And, you know, if it doesn't, then, you know, whoa, I got to figure out, you know, what, you know, how to resolve that. But I, I think we're basically, the, maybe the easiest way to talk about it is traditionally, most VCs are asked to do 1% of their fund. That's like the GP commit. What we are putting towards this effort is more than the 1% that we used to do, you know, of our venture funds, right? So, you know, people can sort of run the math and figure that out. What is it specifically about the venture model that you were disillusioned by? Like, was it going around to the LPs, to the endowments? To no, the... no, I love, I, in fact, they're great. We've always been really focused on a small number of endowments and foundations who we, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure we're going to figure out some way to continue to work with. Like, there's going to be checks that are, you know, too big, you know, for us to write in companies that we've, you know, maybe backed previously and, you know, SPVs or that type of stuff. Also, a lot of them are um, actually working with us in Screen Door, a fund of funds that we created to help back emerging managers from uh, underrepresented segments. So we can we can talk about that later. Um, so definitely not the LPs. I think that the stuff that sort of we were sort of scratching our head about was uh, two things. One, there's lots of great reasons to use other people's money to build your business. If you're going to be multi-generational, I think you need to do that. You can't be tied to any one GP's capital. So like, you know, you're, you're, you're investing in things where you really need to be a, the leader of that round and they need a lot of money. Like, let's say if you were starting a climate fund right now, I think you'd really want outside LPs because the, the capital requirements of those companies might be significant. You know, if you can't afford, look, there's lots of people like we started a little bit later in our career. If you're earlier and you need a fee structure, right? Like in order to pay the bills, in order to be able to bring on, you know, younger employees, like that's a great reason to have outside money. If you're risk averse, which I'd say most VCs are, and you don't want to necessarily put your own capital at risk in a meaningful way, like, you know, outside money. So none of that applies to us. And so in that case, it's like, it's just not a tool we need. The second is, and we can talk more about this, I think 
there's a, you know, what do you want to call it? A, a, a prisoner's dilemma right now where uh, everybody, every manager, every VC is being rewarded for increasing the velocity of their capital deployment. Every firm is raising faster right. and bigger. Management fees. <laughs> I know you're leaving, you're leaving management fees. That's We're leaving management fees on the table. Right. LPs are concerned about this, but at the same time, the last few years of venture has been fantastic for top, top endowments and foundations, not just paper markups, real returns. And so their models say, reinvest this into those VCs. And in fact, when their VCs come back faster and with bigger and Sequoia's like, hey, you got to, you know, you got to come in and you got to come in in this big way or like, you know, buy it, take it or leave it. And they're like, okay, we're going to take it. You've been great for us, right? Like the amount of money that just keeps flowing into the venture ecosystem is larger and larger. I, I think it actually is leading to venture capital I guess sort of like funding their own continued commoditization of capital. Like, what does it mean when just everybody is like 300, 400, 500 million dollars, you know, or billion dollar AUMs? It just becomes this like race to deploy it, you know? And I think for us, it was like, that is not interesting. Like that is a, that is a impediment to us being able to make measured choices to work with who we want and to be aligned with those founders, right? Like, look, big funds. When, when you say, like, yeah. you know, wasn't interesting to you, do you mean that it also is not to the benefit of the founders as well? Like, is there a real neg net negative for the industry? Look, I think there's lots of playbooks, right? I believe that if you have a very large fund, hundreds, millions, billions of dollars, that's going to implicitly and explicitly define what a success looks like, right? Like, it's just math. It's just the physics of, of a venture. If you have a billion dollar fund, you know, a $400 million exit, you know, sucks if you have $50 million into that company. I believe that if you are going to be a focused early stage investor, you should try to have the smallest fund possible to run your strategy. Because I think it's not about, you know, betting on lower outcomes. It's not about playing defense versus offense. It's about having the patience to give that company the time to figure out what sort of company it's going to be and then using capital to help back it, not the race to, well, can you get to the next round in 12 to 18 months, you know, or, you know, it looks like you're not an outlier type of stuff. Look, we have, you know, multiple multi-billion dollar companies, you know, in our fund one, right? Some of those realized, some of those still on paper. You guys are back in Chime, right? Chime, Plaid, Cruise, Gusto, you know, Honor, a few more. Every one of those companies had a different first one, two, three years. Some were straight and up to the right and exited for more than a billion within that time, Cruise. Some of them were up and down, you know, Chime, maybe the most valuable of those. They almost didn't get, you know, two of their funding rounds done. Like it took longer for that model to prove itself and work. Neobanks and fintech wasn't hot yet, right? So I just don't think you can forecast the eventual success of a company by the slope of the curve early on. You have to be prepared to work with them to figure out who they are, then use capital to accelerate it. And I think if you, the larger your fund, I think the the less patient you are, the more eager you are for write-ups, the more um, you're going to be selective, you know, maybe adversely selective of companies that are telling you they're only up and to the right. And, and I just think founders need more choices. They need more choices of different types of capital. And so, you know, we want to be one of those choices. I think that what you just described sounds great. The reality I have a question about, though, because once you have a company and you start raising money, founders are going to start raising from people in addition to your firm. 
And oh, of so course, yeah. when they start raising money, say in a series B and they get on that, you know, and, and they're put on that conveyor belt of, okay, now you, you're expected to raise money at a certain time. You're supposed expected to have a certain kind of exit and a certain kind of growth. Like your approach seems to me like it would get snowed under by the reality of the rest of the VC market. So how do you still provide that kind of like patience and time for yeah. founders if they're just going to raise their Series B from Sequoia and oh, sure, suddenly sure. be Look, on this like mad conveyor belt? Absolutely. Well, you picked a very interesting moment because I usually tell founders that up until the Series B, they actually have some optionality. Like, depending on who they take money from, like they have the ability to sort of say, look, we can take one step backwards to take two step forward. Hey, this is good, but not great. Let's try something different. I actually sort of, you know, generally say series B is where you've given up most of that optionality. And um, you start to move towards something that says, we now have to both figure out how to keep growing what we're doing and what's going to be the next growth driver, right? That, and hopefully in a quote unquote perfect world, the Series B is coming at a point at which the company is ready for that sort of capital and ready for that sort of challenge. In the fast-paced world of company announced its Series A, and that starts to leading inbound on the Series B, and the terms are great and you take capital early, that actually introduced risk. People sometimes think, oh, I just raised $50 million. I de-risked my company. I'm like, no way. You just re-risked it. Like, you, you just set the, the bar you have to get to even higher. And the second thing I'll say is like, look, we, like I said, under the old model where we'd lead around. I don't want to talk about fund strategy the whole time, but like I want to make sure like I do understand it. Do you think you'll make more money with this fund strategy? Like is more, it a- more in absolute dollars? Yeah. Than what? Than like going and raising a $500 million fund? Absolutely not. Right. So, I mean, maybe you'll have a better IRR potentially. I mean, I, who cares? Hopefully. So for who? Right. Who cares about IRR? Right. It's unclear if I want... If I want to maximize dollars, I might have stayed at Google. Like who cares right. about... Like, look, I, I there's two ways to look at this, I think, stuff. Like there's the... I am above a floor in my like personal comfort, which right. makes, you know, which makes things that I can add to it, you know, great. I can, um, I can, you know, donate more money or like, uh, maybe I can buy a vacation house. Like that's wonderful, but those aren't things I'm going to optimize for. I think, you know, I've been so, you know, lucky, fortunate, privileged, whatever that like, I'm looking at it as I think if we're good at it, we can do just fine. And if I'm not good at it, I'm not, I don't, I'm not creating myself a lifestyle that requires, you know, a seven figure salary every year, so on and so forth. Like, I think, right. I think wealth you can look at as like a floor or a ceiling. Look, so long as I'm above a floor, I'm fine. And I'm going to optimize for other things. Or like, there's always a next number to get. I also wrote a blog post saying we don't talk about money uh, real enough in Silicon Valley, right? It's a bunch of hand waving. And you say, say, you're basically saying you've made enough money that you, that you are wealthy enough that you don't need to optimize for wealth anymore. I can defer that, a nope. salary. I can defer a salary, assume that I'm going to continue to be a relatively good investor and keep that upside in lieu of a salary. But is if this, I make, it's true that people if I don't make like zero to talk money, about that. If I make zero dollars from now on, it. it would be bad, right? Like, yeah. if, but 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 if, I, if it's lumpy and variable, that's okay. Yeah, and but, people but don't like saying, to admit that they're very rich in Silicon Valley. It's a weird thing, like right. I mean, look, I'm 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 Silicon Valley middle class, right? Like, which I winkingly joke is you know only like a multi <laughs> a multi millionaire, you know, not a right. centimillionaire. But like, I, shit. I I mean, look, I was at I was at Google from 2003 to 2012. If like if I wasn't a millionaire from that, like I, I did something really wrong. <laughs> but but you're I saying, was, I mean, you had a 90 million dollar fund. In 2018, right, and now you're saying like you're committing to more. Th- you're gonna have m- more than your one percent stake before. So like, 
you're going to be investing like a million dollars. I just 80, want to get the order of magnitude here. It's we'd have we, so the way that I sort of describe it because we literally don't have a number is um, Sacha and I each like mentally committed, you know, sort of like a number for the first one or two years. And then as we, which is mostly going to be deployed. So like, I think 80% of our checks are going to be like 100K to 500K checks. And then I think 20% will be later or larger. And so Hmm. if we do like, let's say we do eight, 10, 12 of those a year, like, I don't know where it averages out, but you can sort of like figure out a low number, figure out a high number, right? Like that's, that's what I think, you know, that's what I think we've committed. And then as we see how that's doing, as we hopefully continue to realize, like we have only seen, you know, we're in the carry on fund one. Uh, and we'll continue to hopefully, you know, be able to return dollars to our investors and ourselves as that portfolio continues to mature. It's still too early to know how funds two and three are going to be. I mean, we're confident in it, but right. you know, our, our goal is to recycle, recycle dollars we see from the previous homebrew funds into this new model. Right. So like I'm, we are dipping into our savings to get it started. And then as money comes back, <laughs> you're like, you know, we're going to be richer in the future, given our current portfolio. And, I am know, right. I am right. So like, I am going to be poorer in the near term than richer again. <laughs> that's the goal. Mm-hmm. Well, that's just investing. <laughs> Do you think, I mean, look, you're obviously doing this as you're describing it because you feel it is, you know, fulfilling to your soul as to how you want to interact with these companies. I, I'd like to stay in the, if there's a two by two, that's like low happiness, high happiness, low success, high success. I much rather be, uh, I much rather focus on the, the being in the happiness, um, with ho- higher, low success than the mm-hmm. success with the higher, low happiness. And I believe that we can stay in the upper right quadrant of high happiness, high success in this model. I think if we grew to 500 million, we'd still have a chance to stay in the success, but I believe we'd be deprecating the happiness. Right. So, but I guess- Because I don't like like managing people. I don't like, you know, having to do a bunch of internal politics. I don't like having to, you know, hobnob with other investors. And if we had like $300, $500 million, like anybody who's grown their fund over the last few years from, you know, the 50 million, 100 million to the 300 million, 400 million, 500 million, lots of wonderful, wonderful people, their lives changed so dramatically and will be changing so dramatically, especially if the markets get choppy. Like I have no interest in spending my time and energy, like justifying my half a billion dollar fund. I just mm-hmm. want to work with founders. Do you think the Valley would operate more successfully or, you know, with a higher happiness quotient, if more funds operated in the same way that you do, because like this, this rush to increase fund sizes, it seems like it's fulfilling, you know, a need, which is that there is money to deploy from the LPs. It tends to pervert the incentives a lot of times of helping to successfully grow these companies. You know, you can build a reasonably sized company, maybe that's profitable, that doesn't need to raise so many rounds of funding. But once, you know, the incentives get put in there because of the types of investors, uh, everything sort of changes. I guess what I'm asking is, do you think more funds should operate like you guys are? It's a hard question because like, look, what I want to be clear is we're not changing the bar for an investment. Like I'm still expecting venture scale outcomes as part of our, you know, quote unquote, you know, homebrew evergreen portfolio. It just, it just so means that like, if something doesn't, you know, get there, it still might be meaningful to us because it's our own money and we're keeping hundred percent of the return. So and so forth. There's also a lot of amazing work being done in, you know, being done in climate, being done in bioscience, you know, nuclear fusion that like my model <laughs> is not helpful for it, right? Like mm-hmm. you need people for better or for worse, you know, throwing hundreds of millions of dollars against those things. And that's wonderful. People think that, you know, venture capital is just like fungible fuel. It's not, it's rocket fuel. Like it's not car fuel. It's not motorcycle fuel. You know, it's not RV fuel. 
all of which are like perfectly fine vehicles. If you want to, if like you're piloting that vehicle, like don't put rocket fuel in your vehicle. Like it will destroy your vehicle. But like if it is a rocket, you know, it is a great capital choice but to you're, you're propel still that rocket, rocket fuel, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So do you think that the types of founders have changed about a decade ago, basically up until like probably the pandemic, what we thought of as a Silicon Valley entrepreneur was pretty much a stereotype. Even if it wasn't um, a white guy, it was somebody who loves to work all the time. And I hate this phrase, but who loves to rise and grind and just wants to go, 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 go. But what you're saying is that there's sort of an acceptance of a wider array of funding choices. You can have different kinds of companies with different kinds of growth speeds. Are we seeing entrepreneurs change? Are we seeing the number of entrepreneurs winnow away now that sort of like we've seen this first class or this like, you know, the sort of mid-teens companies either succeed or now we're seeing them all get sold off, you know? Yeah. We're, we're kind of seeing the ones that didn't succeed really not succeed. So like, are we seeing a different kind of founder? I think I'm an optimist in this scenario because I think you know, early stage venture is probably still underfunded on a global basis, right? Like it's overfunded periodically in a particular zip code or area code, you know, or like, you know, particular idea. But I think as software driven businesses, you know, Mark Andreessen says software eats the world. I sort of flatten that a little bit to software enables the world. That feels nicer. But the, uh, that's why, and that's why I'm not a billionaire. <laughs> the, the nicer side of Mark The nicer side. Yeah. Yeah. So that leads me to believe that like, wow, maybe what we're seeing actually is the byproduct of like, you know, industrial capitalism becomes technology capitalism and, and businesses everywhere are being built with software and, and, you know, so on and so forth. So I actually think there's tons of opportunity. And that is not just because there's tons of capital available. Like it's because there's tons of, you know, people who want to be entrepreneurs. And, and as, you know, as there are um, even in some cases out of desperation, as there are fewer stable long-term job options, you know, maybe that incrementally continues to push people towards like, well, stability is actually building my own thing or, you know, or now I can solve, I can use software to solve, you know, a problem for a business that predates the PC, you know, uh, agriculture, you know, construction, all these industries that are really embracing software out of both, you know, opportunity and necessity. I do believe that creates more and different entrepreneurs. And I, I think some of the axioms that are now true that maybe would have been disputed 10 years ago or were just like, you know, sort of cliche 10 years ago are now true are like good businesses can be built anywhere, right? Like I think that was already happening in the last few years sort of proved that geography itself, you know, may not be sort of a limiting factor. People used to say things like, you know, and entrepreneurs can look like anybody, right? Um, and then, you know, flash a portfolio page and they didn't look like anybody. You took a particular one type of person, put them into a GAN uh, with a bunch of like, you know, AI generated images that were all kind of like oblong versions of the same person and like, oh, look. But I do think that's changing. Um, maybe not fast enough, but like, I mean, I, I know in our portfolio, you know, we've always been sort of like, I think 50% or more of our companies have a, has at least one female founder, you know, that type of stuff. And so it, it's happening. But do you, do you still, do you chase archetypes? I mean- Oh, great I, question. Like, because Charles Hudson, you know, had this tweet, like, VC is a weird business. If you look at it as a 2D business, check size stage, it looks broadly competitive. If you add a third dimension, preferred founder archetype, it becomes hyper-competitive among small groups of peers and not competitive at all outside of that group. And you also wrote sort of about mission-driven founders and how that wasn't always a great archetype. So I guess, how do you think about sort of still chasing, or maybe you don't, but chasing founder archetypes in a world right. where you're trying to have more diverse well, just, founders? Just, just to correct, 
I said, I love mission-driven founders. Here are some of the places that they get themselves into trouble as leaders okay. and, and the ways that, that they can avoid or address those because I, I love mission-driven founders. I also wrote something that basically talks about consensus. Is my, is my job as an investor, a rocket fuel investor, is my job to find and win consensus deals or is it to find and bet on non-consensus ones? And it's funny, you ask that question to different people and some will be like, more people than I expected say consensus. It's a good strategy. It's like, what's the hot startup right. that's going to keep raising and, money? And what do I mean yeah. by consensus? Consensus is, you know, pattern matching archetypes, working in an area that people understand with some social proof, you know, on the cap table with a little bit of momentum. Those have traded off the charts, right? So like that's where prices have gone up so dramatically. Non-consensus startups, people who don't pattern match some of the archetypes you're talking about, working in industries that aren't yet trendy in venture or are out of favor in venture, those actually are where the quote unquote deals are still meant, you know, st still exist. If you want to be a smaller fund, like otherwise, if you're, if you're underwriting to 2x, 3x returns, you know, and you're just trying to win the consensus deals and they, the, the, the outcomes are bigger than ever, then fine, go and continue to pattern match. I guess I would say that any archetype that is both well understood and correct is eventually going to see the profit multiple back to the investor compressed because that's where the competition occurs. And so, yes, it's sort of a reasonable fun strategy to say, I have, an, I have archetypes that are correct, but not yet widely understood that I'm going to invest in because that is the true definition maybe of contrarian, right? Like contrarian is not, you know, investing in people who dropped out of college, right? You know, like uh, maybe it was when, you know, Peter and others did whatever, but like, that's not contrarian now. Like contrarian is not going into YC. Like that's, you know, that, that, that's Harvard now, right? right? Like, right. do you have a, so do you have an archetype that you sort of, that's become more consensus since you started or? I have personality traits that I care about. I, I have, I have founder traits that I care about maybe more than the average venture investor because A, they're, they, they're matched to the type of people I enjoy getting up and, and working on behalf of putting sweat and, and, and reputation behind in addition to dollars. And two, I think they were sort of, um. The, the trade-offs that come with those are things that I think we can help solve, you know, help them versus, you know, risks that I'm not, that I'm not good at de-risking, right? And so what I've always said is, like, I'm happy to have teams that don't have a technical founder, but have, you know, technology awareness. They're going to bring the technology in-house, but it's not like the two founders are, are technologists. Now we have plenty that are, right? So it's not a, it's not a bifurcation. It's just, hey, I, I'll look at those. How about I respond to, I respond to every cold email, right? Like I don't care about warm introductions and networks as an archetype. I think a lot of the best folks, you know, are outside of networks. Now that doesn't mean that they like, you know, don't have to prove that they can do something interesting. I, I, I those cold emails are best when they include like a link to a demo of something they built or a product that a customer is already using rather than just like, you know, Hey, fund me and I'll build this. Right. I am perfectly happy to back people who don't have a traditional educational pedigree. And so like one of one of the examples in our first fund that like will stick with me the longest and maybe in some ways I'm proudest of was in the construction space, a company called Building Connected, two founders, again, not part of the network, not Stanford, not Facebook, cold email. We led their seed round. I sat on their board. Uh, they raised up to a B round. They had a you know growth term sheet on the table and also a $300 million acquisition from Autodesk for a bunch of reasons. You know, we were perfectly happy to support them going on. I think there are scenarios where it could have been a multi-billion dollar business, but 
I think they correctly for themselves decided that selling to Autodesk was the right thing. Because they, haven't, because they didn't overcapitalize the company and because they were good investors around the table, that was meaningful for every investor. It, it returned half our fund because, you know, hmm. got, it, got in early, concentrated early stage. Uh, it changed the founders' lives multi-generationally. You know, one of them started a, you know, started a, a foundation, um, a, a scholarship at his high school to send people to college. He came from an area where, you know, college wasn't the default next step type of stuff. He, he benefited from something like that prior. Um, early employees all made out, you know, well, because the company had overdiluted. One of the founders did a year at Autodesk, handcuffs are off, you know, went and, and now is CEO of another thing. The other one is still there leading a thousand people, right? I am so, and, and you know, look, I have a lot of problems with the way our government's working, different types of things, inequality, but like that for me was a heck yeah capitalism moment, right? Because where else can a guy who worked in construction for a few years and his technical buddy, you know, um, decide that they're going to step away from jobs, not because they have trust funds and not, but because they like have an urgent problem they want to solve for an industry that, you know, has been ignored by people, you know, coming out of, you know, maybe some more traditional colleges and universities or even worse, targeted just because it's big and quote unquote broken and the salespeople can go interface with the construction folks. We don't want to like, we're not going to get our hands dirty. Like this is a guy who's like hands, you know, grew up hands dirty and was able to build something that the industry wanted that, you know, was not a, a a hundred billion dollar, excuse me, a billion dollar, you know, acquisition by somebody that was later written down to zero because it was a flash in the pan. Like, you know, it's been doing great for Autodesk and we're able to take economics away from it that like, you know, now like fundamentally they would not have been able to, to do in anything other than, than like entrepreneurism. And by the way, because we take a concentrated early stage approach, like I said, I can actually have it be a home run for us, you know, not just a single double like, oh, okay, we got one XR money back, you know, I guess we'll make it somewhere else, right? Like, I love those. I would never give up the opportunity, ability to like support and back those founders, you know, you know, just to sort of, you know, chase the chase what everybody else is doing. Speechless. I love it. No, I, I was just, like, I, I was I like, wait, why didn't we write question, about this company? But... <laughs> <laughs> this was obviously a huge failure on the part of the media because that's like Look, such a much uh, more oh, positive can... story for the industry. Oh yeah, let's talk about this. You know, so I have like I have companies in the portfolio that thankfully now like are starting to get coverage. But like anytime people want to be like, oh hey, let me let me let me write a takedown of this like halfway interesting company. But or... the stories I get the most feedback on were not necessarily negative stories. You know, I I wrote a story about a school, like a coding academy that just very unusually accepted students who didn't have a lot of money, who didn't have mm -hmm. a background in tech. And the story itself, got, I had tons of incoming, first of all, people who wanted to figure That's out awesome. how to go there, but also people who were not business, you know, New York Times, like business section readers who yeah. were happy to hear that something was happening in Silicon Valley that wasn't atrocious. And then third of all, I wrote that story years ago and I just got a note from somebody saying, oh, remember this person you wrote about? He was living in his car while he was going to the school. He went to Holburton. I don't, I mean, he he was homeless when he went to yeah. Holburton and he was the lead of the story. He has an extraordinary job now. He works, you know, for- So great. I can't say which three-letter agency, but he's doing very well. <laughs> right, look, and I so, love it. I mean, it. that's like, I do think we love those stories. I don't want to, I don't want people to think we yeah, don't. Yeah, look, I'm not a, hey, tech doesn't tell enough good, you know, tech press doesn't tell enough good stories. You only want to, and I'm also a whole truth to power, a whole uh, truth, yeah, truth to power, right? Like, I, you know, I think the biggest challenge our industry faces is it sees, it's, it continues to see itself as an underdog when it's actually 
the railroad barons, right? Well, that like, kind of goes back to that idea that like nobody in Silicon Valley wants to admit just how rich they are. It's like they kind of want to admit it by being like, hey, I sit courtside or I do this or I have this crazy house, but they don't want to like be open about the fact that they have basically fuck you money and they can live almost completely outside of well, even the constraints of, that, of the dem- democratic system. Or that it was, or that it was somehow, er- it was, it's, it's noble, like it's noble money. That right. somehow that money is right. more noble right. than, right. than other Because wealth. a little bit of it went to like, you know, a teacher's right. pension fund. Well, it's the same way I think a lot right. of founders get nostalgic about the early days or, you know, the times where they were just hanging out in a small office, just trying to make it work because, you know, obviously they're precarious relatively, um, but you are able to focus more on the mission, what you think the mission is rather than, you know, trying to please your investors. And, and I feel like, you know, the same thing kind of comes up in criticizing the critical tech stories. It's just like, weren't we having so much fun when it was all about, you know, highlighting funding announcements? Yeah. I tell you the two things I, the two things I do wish when it comes to reporting is I do wish that, um, and I think the, I think the longer somebody's in it, either they understand this or they actually move further away from it. I, I wish folks could actually embed within, I wish folks had done a startup or could embed in with a startup because often what's sort of like perceived as a specific choice, you know, is sort of more like at, at worst an unintended consequence. I, I, would, I would love, by the way, to work out of any New York City startups office for a month. I, I work out of my home, so I'm happy. Right. Have you, have you asked, have you put that out there? I, well, I'm, I'm, I'm throwing this out on the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> we were on a startup with the information, but, but I would, I, well, that, right. And look, but, but to put it out to people, I would like to do that kind of story. I mean, I would I love mean, to I do would that. also argue that the three of us did work out of a startup. <laughs> I mean, we actually okay, worked two things. We're going to do two things. This, when this podcast drops, we are going to find Eric a startup. <laughs> yes. And second, yeah. and what I'll say about Katie, about the information is I think Jessica, one of Jessica's early columns was like what I now understand, you know, working right. at a startup that I didn't understand when I was covering them, right? 100%. Which was something like, like sometimes like, oh, I used to take every product, you know, get it canceled as like, oh, this is, you know, this is smoke. I got to find the fire. Something must be really wrong. And like, I've had, to, now I've had to cancel products sometimes just because like, you got to focus or this or that. It's right. like not, you know, it's not scanned, you know, like a few things. And, but obviously also, you know, doesn't mean that like every startup is perfect and should be treated with kid gloves and like, you know, that type of stuff. I, you know, I look back at, uh, uh, I don't, Eric, I don't know if you want to get to the YouTube stuff, but like, I, do, I, yeah. I look back at YouTube and like, there were things that I did not recognize, you know, th- there were, there were second order effects to some of the choices we made that were not obvious to me at the time. I don't know if any sort of quote unquote process changes would have made them more apparent to me. I do firmly believe, and we tried as best we could to have a product team that looked more like our user base than Google demographics, let's say. But I also believe that like, actually the way to sort of, you know, anticipate unintended consequences, let's say, is in team composition of demographics. That like the more, div- the more diversity, ge- geographic, you know, cl- class-based um, uh, ethnicity, whatever the, 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 right, the right phrasing is, that you have on your product team and the more that those people are out to speak and bring their experience to that, I think the more likely you are to sort of debate, anticipate, and properly, like, you know, judge how your product is going to be used, right? Like the everything is Gamergate, you know, now, right? Like, well, if you didn't, mm-hmm. if you don't know what that is, or you didn't experience it or so on and so forth, like, and you're building a social product, you should probably understand, right? Has your, has your worldview evolved? Or I, I, you know, I, I know you some, but not, I think of you, you know, from your Twitter presence and like, you're like sort of good liberal in 
tech world, right? Or do you see yourself that way? Or like, I feel like there's sort of a lot it's of not like, my mm. not, not not my exact tagline. <laughs> no, you wouldn't. Yesterday, I say that partially to sort of like funniest yeah. VC. I thought funniest VC was what that's a was low being bar. That's a low yesterday. bar. Hunter, I, I guess I think not a, most centrist liberal. <laughs> that that was the thread. I was the low bar. Yeah. No, do you disagree? You're often like I feel like you know there there's this a lot of these tech platforms had sort of a very like sort of, you know, free speech was the byword at like Reddit back in the day. There was such like that long period where there was like, no, you know, we don't want to moderate. We want to have an open platform. I mean, YouTube is still like pretty loose, but then, you know, I feel like, yeah, the, it's, it's been sort of the de- the mainstream Democrats who have been much more pro moderate. Yeah, look, I don't, I don't, I don't know how to political. I mean, obviously, I I tend to vote Democrat, but like, right. I don't know how to, I don't know how to um, cater- I don't know how to categorize myself in in sort of the, the same way that you did. But here's what I'll say about YouTube, <laughs> and and those sort of you were an early supporter of uh, of AOC, weren't you? I remember seeing you tweet positively. Yeah, I helped. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, Sacha and I and our and our, and our spouses All right, so um, I'm not helped crazy. do the do the first. Uh, well, look, I think even outside of whether you agree with all her policies, that like she is an archetype for a type of leader that we need to see on like, you know, both sides of the aisle. And also I grew up in Queens, <laughs> 718 born, 516 raised. So I was at YouTube from 2007 to end of 2012. People say like, when did you leave Google? I'm like, well, my heart kind of left in middle of 2011. My body <laughs> left at the end of 2012. <laughs> but but it was great. I, so I was the first product lead post-acquisition working, you know, for Chad and and stuff like that. I think there were a few things I believed about YouTube then that were atypical, and some of them have become more normalized. Some of them are still debatable. And I think the the things I believed and, and tried to build into the product, tried to build into the team, were that we are not, quote unquote, an agnostic platform, right? That like the, oh, well, we're not a media, like, I, I wouldn't call us a media company either, but like, if you have terms and conditions and community standards that are anything beyond just what is minimally legally required, you are already making editorial decisions. You are making decisions about what sort of content you want on the platform, so on and so forth. To say that like you're neutral is is not true. And I think that's fine. I also tried to build out with a great policy team, build out policies that were principle-based, and then we could evolve the definitions because it's very hard to do the reverse. It's very hard to have enough like case law to where you can perfectly write, you know, what is there's always going to be gray area. And I think the clearest thing is like, here is the type of service we are trying to build. You know, if you do things that like fall outside these boundaries, like there might be consequences. Here are some examples of that. But people are going to come up with new examples, right? And you can't wait a year to then update it. Like you have to try to address it in the moment. So I think it's okay to actually like create some expectations of how people, of what's okay. And then, you know, review and evolve those over time. And sometimes it's okay to be wrong. Like we were wrong about some stuff. Like what? I'll, I'll tell you one sec. And the third that I've always believed in, because I was at Second Life and AdSense before, is I've always believed, and this Chad believed this too. I mean, thankfully, because I, I couldn't have gotten it done on my own, was that, you know, likes and retweets are not payment. And that creators, you know, deserve payment for their creativity and audience. And that if you are not doing that as a platform at the Best case scenario, you're leaving a strategic hole open for somebody else to do it. Worst case scenario, you are exploiting people. And I never wanted to exploit, I never wanted to work for a company that exploited people. Um, so Katie, just real quick, we always had the question of like policy made in the Bay Area, you know, sometimes in the East Bay, depending upon <laughs> where we were sitting. Like is East Bay policies, you know, like 
good for the world, right? Um, and so, for example, there were certainly geographies, um, especially ones that we didn't operate in but were available in, that sometimes asked YouTube to do things to content, mostly take down, that we did not abide by because we weren't commercially operating in their, their country. We didn't believe in those principles. You know, it was more towards the free speech. But when we were operating in a country, we really did have to understand, like, okay, we've got people on the ground there, employees on the ground. Like, if we're going to be operate commercially in this country, what is right, what is wrong? Um, I'm gonna, I'm probably gonna get a little bit wrong. Apologies to any Thai people, but like, it's, it's, um, it's, it's, it's out of humility. If I remember correctly, like, there was, you know, this thing in Thailand where the government asked us to take down some videos that were showing like photoshops of, you know, like bare feet on the heads of very influential or maybe even religious, you know, or political Thai figures. To us, that looks like, you know, no, we're not going to take this down. Like that's like free speech and it's silly. But then you'd sort of start to see those videos getting flagged and they weren't getting flagged from like government IPs. Like they were getting flagged from actual users. And you'd look for the reasons and they're like, this is actually like, this actually is offensive. Like, you know, to us. And again, I don't want to go over general. I was like, well, now we understand the Thai people. But like, there was enough grassroots. And so we didn't take it down, but we did put up an interst, you know, we created a new type of interstitial that was basically like, this complies with our terms of service, but users in your country find it objectionable for the following, like, you know, category hmm. reasons. And people could click through. And so, like, we want, but trust me, like, the first thing, you know, that we thought was like skepticism and dismissiveness, right? And we learned, like, no, like, if you're going to have a global footprint and global responsibility, you have to sometimes realize that like your first assumptions or what you're comfortable with or what you're uncomfortable with does not match, you know, your community <laughs> where they are. And so make those tough decisions, right? Um, I like this. So philosophically, I'm so curious about this because I, I think the biggest tech companies have decided that in general, what they'll do is they'll comply with the laws and in some ways the norms of the companies in which they operate. But at what point does a big tech company have to decide, okay, we cannot really comply with either of those things. It doesn't work for us. And does that mean that the idea of a global tech company, especially consumer facing, is something we'll see chipped away at over the next few years? My answer is like, I don't know. I think that there is a perfectly viable path that basically says, we are going to operate on each country's laws and there is a set of red lines. There's a, there's a minimum set of like, yeah, you know, of things that need to be in place for us to operate in that country. So like some, some set of choices, if there's a bunch of different toggles, like some combination of those toggles based upon country law mean that we are going to forego operating in that country. And that will be more granular and broader than just the China issue, right? Like historically, this has been like the China issue. Is it worth trying to operate there because, you know, you can change from within and it's a big, you know, big market opportunity? Or is it a quagmire where you have to compromise too many of your, you know, stated values around user privacy or, you know, freedom of expression, you know, and information to, you know, to spin up your service? So I do think we're going to hopefully see, you know, more companies being deliberate about what those choices are and maybe denying their services to countries that seem to be not good actors, right? But I don't know. Like I, this is this is this is a tough one. But anyone who builds global services like has to has to think through this obviously, right? It sort of is like, wow. But it's you know, but again, like I don't feel bad for companies dealing with this. Like this is you have trillion dollar market caps, like you have, you know, executives who, 
you know, this is what you signed up for, right? Like, mm-hmm. But that's, the, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, the negotiation at some point isn't really so much between the user, you know, the companies and the governments. It's between the companies and their investors, because the expectation is that you do operate in all these countries because you need to continue grow, you know, continue growing your user base and extracting well, more, you know, more this money is actually, from said users. I, 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 I meant to take a set of notes on things I needed to accomplish during this podcast, and I, I forgot to do that. But now you just prompted me. Because we're audio, not video, usually during video podcasts, I change my hat and and hoodie a few times to different to promote different portfolio companies. Okay, you're no so, longer you know, supporting. Just so your, your, your I'm school. gonna have to do that audio audio wise. Okay. So I happen to be a personal investor in a company called Long Term Stock Exchange that Eric Reese started, which is about giving uh, companies uh, a chance to list in a place where you can uh, bias towards, uh, maybe even create voting structure. You know, sort of put proposals together that. Um, reward investors who are going to be long-term holders and allow you to think long-term, right? Still very nascent. Uh, there's some companies that have pledged, you know, to, to be on there, Asana, so on and so forth. But like, I am actually hopeful that there is going to be investor structures that better match against like, you know, and not just B Corps that better match against, you know, sort of the types of trade-offs you're talking about, Tom. Uh, I'll tell you one thing. So I always, this is, I always say this sort of jokingly, but I also kind of not joking. So like my solution to this issue of like what Facebook, you know, what truth is being discussed on Facebook and like, you know, it's safe in Menlo Park, but not great in Sri Lanka. Where, where, where were the sort of, you know, quote unquote, Facebook, uh, Myanmar, right? Was it Myanmar? Myanmar? Yeah. Yeah. Myanmar. Yeah. So here, here's my joke, not joke kind of thing. Like take the Facebook's executive team or even better, like board of directors. And this is going to change, you know, annually, but like Shirley Jackson, the lottery, like once a year, one of you is going to have to make your major life choices based upon what the average Facebook user believes, right? So if the average Facebook user believes that vaccinations, you know, are fake because that's what's been spread, like you can't get vaccinated or like, you know, basically how do we like, you know, it's obviously a joke, but like, it's the sort of the question about when, when leadership of these companies essentially are in an Elysium that is so distanced from the downstream impacts and downstream consequences that uh, you know their their products are are influencing. Is it, it's almost, the idea is if they had to live under it, they would want to nudge these people to have views that they found palatable, or well, not palatable that were like um, more amenable to their lifestyle. I mean, you see that, or to they a, would to a at degree. least like downplay the ideas and not sure. allow them to be the most prominent ideas. But it's an interesting twist on. You're you're trying to make saying that normally his position is elitist that the elites would try to direct how people think. And you're sort of saying, well, if the elites want to live under a, the world they're creating, they should have to have to suffer it. Or uh, is right. that right? Don't you think new? that's sort of like look? I look agree. at that. Somebody's I mean, I, a writer. They, look at this that. is my argument for I, the metaverse. I, I <laughs> Somebody's a writer. I mean, to me, it's like the idea that Ben Shapiro and like Dom Boingo or whatever. I don't even know. But like these people are <laughs> like. Is, is that, that a cartoon character? Oh, like Gino. Gino. <laughs> <laughs> Don't Don't Boingo. Boingo. That was the soundboard. That was the soundboard. Boingo. The fact that they're the top, that whatever Facebook is doing to make them among sort of the most popular Facebooks in the world, to me, and I don't know if you would agree with this, would be is evidence enough that something is broken with the platform. Why would you want to create a product where the thing you're building audience for is like Ben Shapiro. I don't know. I feel like that's sort of a full stop problem. Like just the same way I wouldn't want to run Fox News and have Tucker Carlson be my banner show. I wouldn't want to own a tech company and have like these really dumb con- 
conservative content creators be sort of the top output uh, that I'm putting out? Or or do you have what do you, do you, you need? Do you hate do you hate 43 percent of America? Is that what you're saying? Eric? He does. Yeah, I I, I grew up in Maine, <laughs> now that Georgia, Eric is not so with so the mainstream is, uh, news organization. You know, I can lived say it. that. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they're, yeah. Enjoy your Soros dollars. Rush Limbaugh (laughs) is like, was terrible. And, you know, people are very responsive. You know, they listen to what what you put out. And that's why it matters what elites like pump out to the world. And I think, I just, I think the distance between, you know, the experience of the quote unquote average person and the 1% is like, you know, quote unquote, the greatest threat to stability, right? And the fact that, look, I don't know the guy, but I, I believe that, you know, there are people like Peter Thiel who like, you know, sort of are calculating enough that like, look, the chaos ladder is going to benefit me. And if things go too shitty, I have enough money to insulate myself, the the chaos that, you know, Bannon created, right? Like, uh, and maybe that's, maybe that's really, you know, maybe he's playing 7D chess for a better, brighter, glorious shared future. But like, that's what I worry about. Like, I worry about when some of our, some of our billionaires, you know, can sort of insulate themselves from the challenges of the world. And I have nothing against billionaires in general. Yeah. Although I liked, I liked when our industry's billionaires were just awkward and not assholes. <laughs> when they were just kind of like <laughs> nerdy, trying to figure out what to do with their money, going to basketball games and getting awkwardly video dancing around. <laughs> it's fine. Yeah, no, I look, Hunter, I think it's, it's a, it's a fascinating point in, in aggregate. And, and, and I see, you know, I, I, during the, during the back and forth, I mentioned this, but like, you know, covering Uber, there was always, I don't know if Travis did this, Eric, Katie, you can tell me, but, you know, Dara makes deliveries from time to time, you know, because he wants to see what the average user, uh, you know, you know, deliver person is like. And, you know, maybe at the margins that kind of changes some of the benefits that they give them or, or subsidies or, or things like that. But, I, you know, it's, do you, do you think there would be a substantive difference if, you know, Susan Wojcicki was, was in a country that has been overrun by misinformation YouTubes? Uh, and the, 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 I mean, maybe she has been, I don't know. I used to spend time in the review, the flagged video review queue fairly, like, I don't remember if I did it monthly or quarterly. I don't want to like overstate it, but I would do that because I felt like it was unfair to ask, you know, I don't care if they're in contractors, employees, but it was unfair to ask human beings to, you know, look at flag videos, which we know could have some very bad things in it. If the product managers and if, if the leadership only saw it as statistics on a piece of paper or like, you know, when people are, when, when you get the stuff that's like, oh, well, you know, Facebook says 99.8% of, you know, of posts didn't contain beheadings, you know, you're like, wait, hold on, like 0.2%, like that's still hundreds of thousands of beheading, you know, watch that like right. live stream and stuff. And not to pick on them because, you know, this was, this was the YouTube thing. And I saw, you know, I saw just about everything but child porn. And that's because uh, child porn is actually pretty easy to filter out uh, algorithmically because it's one of the areas where like content uh, fingerprinting is shared amongst companies and so on and so forth. Uh, uh, it doesn't mean it's a problem. It just means it just means like it actually didn't get to the to the. But I saw be I saw I saw you know ISIS beheadings. I saw all different types of graphic porn. I you know and like having to watch you know having to see the things you cannot unsee. <laughs> I do mm-hmm. think creates a different visceral impact upon the leadership of these companies than just seeing it in text as a summary report and trying to, you know, sort of debate, well, you know, should we put resources on making that number go up or down, you know, or should we put more money on advertising? You know, right? That matters. If I'm a social media elite worried about, you know, having to live under the ideology that I'm programming 
into the masses? Like what, what is the lever that I pull to make sure that I can still take the vaccine? Or I don't know. Do you, what do you think? I mean, there are certain moves that would seem to bias things just politically versus seem more neutral, or I don't know. Do you have like a prescription? The first is diverse teams anticipate, you know, sort of the outlier use cases. So have diverse teams. The second is the senior executives at social media companies should be exposed to and occasionally do the job of the lowest level folks who are often the content reviewers. If you are just seeing, you know, sort of reports and statistics and not actually understanding what people are dealing with, you know, I think you lose empathy for it. The third is that we have to maybe come to grips that in some of these companies that they're not software margin companies, right? Software margin means high margin because you used to make a CD-ROM of a, you know, of a uh, Excel, you know, whatever, distributed in shrink wrap boxes, and there were no marginal costs of, you know, each new, each new box outside of the cardboard. And that's what our, that's what investors and Wall Street, you know, sort of demand. And so as a result, in these sorts of services, trust and safety is staffed as a cost center. It, it's a drain on margin. And so you want to minimize trust and safety, uh, minimize cons- customer support to not put your software margins at risk. And so I, I think it is a vector for, you know, when we talk about regulatory, you know, I think there's actually some interesting questions about, are you staffing trust and safety and responsiveness to different types of flat content and so on and so forth, you know, proportionate to your content volume so that the worst types of things that are occurring you know, on the system aren't live for hours, days, weeks, while they crawl through, you know, multiple tiers of support and so on and so forth. And so like, no, I don't want real time evaluation of every YouTube video, right? It doesn't scale in perpetuity. But I think that there's this question about, are we staffing to the level of public good? or Are we staffing to the level of, you know, a margin structure that we've convinced ourselves these companies should have even if it creates more negative externalities, uh, you know, for the world. You know, what's interesting about that specifically, though, is that listening in on Facebook earnings call, Zucks was, you know, he was signaling for a long time that they were going to be making multi-billion dollar investments in their trust and safety teams, and it would have a material impact on profits. And from my understanding of it, that didn't affect the company's valuation too much. I mean, the thing that really tanked Facebook was when it was a pure business problem, right? Yeah. When they Look, were, and know. this is, I think over the last year or two, this has changed a little bit as because I think, I think it's become, you know, expected. Uh, bit, yeah. Right. So like Susan, you know, the num- I, I'm sure there's been more growth in, you know, over the last few years on these teams than there were in the first, you know, 10 to 15 to 20. And that's a good thing. And I think that's frankly been that, that, that wasn't internally motivated, right? I think that came in response to uh, press scrutiny, regulatory scrutiny, mm-hmm. you know, contractor complaints, that type of stuff. And it's great. So maybe like, you know, maybe we're halfway there already, but you know, if you were going to look and say, what's, you know, for the next generation of these sorts of things for the, for the metaverse, you know, whatever, like, you know, what are some standards to evaluate whether they're likely to go, you know, stay on the rails or go off the rails? It's, mm-hmm. you know, are you, you know, developing trust and safety in a way that scales to an experience goal or, you know, or to a, to a margin goal? I, we have to let you go. But like, I mean, one, one thing that media companies do is assess, you know, like sources, is this person generally honest? Or if I run an op-ed page, you know, are they making strong arguments? You know, there's like this human assessment of the quality of the product that you're putting out, right? And so if you're expanding, and certainly for like the top 
sort of traffic generators on a platform, it's not a big enough set. It's a small enough set that, you know, it's knowable to those social media platforms. I mean, do you think they should apply media level standards, like actual quality filters? I never like using the word quality for me. This is what you say at at YouTube. Quality refers to bit rate. Not not content well, that, because that shows your orientation that it's still fundamentally. Oh, I'm, I'm like, user generated. You think it's yeah. an engineering problem <laughs> rather than it's like we are a media business, and ads, so the main thing we should care about is Second media. Life AdSense YouTube. No, I think right. that I think that the classic <laughs> I think that the classic gatekeeper definitions of media are a subset of the type of content that deserves to exist and be seen in the world, and so that trying to you know suggest that those are the you know aspirational markers in terms of you know, even subject uh, is, is is fundamentally wrong and misjudges, you know, the question about what people are interested in. The community standards, the business model, the incentive system, does that also mean that then we should run to sort of like lowest common denominator in terms of people's, you know, people's interests? Um, no, I think that we have a responsibility to think about that. I'm glad to see, for example, that the companies have said, you know, have sort of re-engineered hopefully their algorithms to say like, well, oh, stuff that's rising quickly in popularity you know, and has a bunch of controversy around it, maybe we should slow that down, you know, until we have a chance to look at it rather than accelerate it to the point where we get a clear enough signal on whether it's really bad or not, right? Like, I think those are the smart engineering choices. Right. I also think, by the way, quickly to to Eric's point that I also think, you know, when we apply media level standards here, we tend to bias towards the narrative that media finds acceptable and not acceptable. And for example, when it comes to anti-vax content, obviously and rightfully, we are incensed by the reality that there's so much anti-vax stuff that gets disseminated through Facebook and, and YouTube and Twitter. But like, you know, the current war in Ukraine right now, I would bet if we look at this period, maybe five, 10 years from now, we were awash in misinformation. We were awash in propaganda, Ukrainian propaganda, telling stories of heroism and, and, and people surviving and, and, you know, people on an island that told the Russians to fuck you and then, and then apparently got killed, that got wide distribution, that had, you know, was as false as anything to do with anti-vax content, but because it is, you know, in in the service of a narrative that we largely agree with, which is that the Ukrainians are victims of the Russian, you know, Russian aggression here, we're okay with. And it's funny to me that we're not seeing that much anger right now at Twitter. I mean, I find Twitter almost unreadable these days when it comes to stuff about Ukraine, because I'm just like, I don't believe this shit. There's no way I, you know, and I don't think anyone's vetting it because people don't care because it sounds good to them. Tom, don't Ukraine truther, birds aren't real. I, I, think, I, I agree I, with what you're saying, 100. Yeah. Look, I changed the way I use Twitter completely because of I this. don't really have a point here other than just like, like, like saying media standards as some sort of high level of of truth that we should all adhere to. We should just acknowledge the fact that like sometimes media standards are what people want to hear. You ready for my good. outro? You ready for my outro line? Yes. Tech doesn't like to admit making mistakes, and the press overcorrects on the last one they made. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. I agree with that. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. Goodbye. Silicon Valley. Goodbye. 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 Goodbye.